or exercise authority. It means to have dominion over a man, but to remain quiet. Nothing particularly hard about that. So why then, I ask myself as I study this, why then do people have a struggle with these two verses? For some people, even some evangelicals, those two verses, 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, are fighting words. And I confess that I don't especially like them myself. They just seem, on the face of it, to be unfair. But are they? And do we have the right to choose for ourselves which verses we will agree with and which we will ignore, or somehow twist to fit our own personal preferences? The Bible says that we do not have that right, and today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will consider the issue as he continues to discuss the roles of women in worship. It's nice to have you with us today, and I hope that today's class will enhance your appreciation of the complete reliability and authority of Scripture, even when the passage in question is controversial or uncomfortable. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, a position in which he has been serving since 1981. Today, Pastor Steve will begin his third sermon in the series, and we'll start with some review of the verses that have led us to this point. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Here's Pastor Steve. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So we want to continue our study of the role of women in the worship service. And I think it is very important to understand and crucial to our understanding that we realize that it is the church worship service that Paul is writing about. He is not speaking about the role of women in the home. He is not speaking about the role of women in society, but in the church. And that is, is very clear to us because chapter 2 opens up and speaks about praying. It's speaking about when the church gathers together, the church is to remember to pray for lost people. That is the context of chapter 2. Paul begins in verse 1 by saying, First of all, then, I urge, and the first of all there means the first thing I have to cover that is really important and vital for you to know is this. There is an urgency to this. So he says that when the church comes together, they are to remember to pray for the lost folks. Now, that is the context. Pray for all people. And in verse 8, he says something very helpful as he kind of ties the knot on this. He says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. Now, men is used here to speak of males, not men in the generic sense of mankind. But I want the males in every place to pray. Now, that term, as we said a few weeks ago, in every place means in every place of worship. In other words, wherever the church meets and gathers for worship, Paul says, I want, and it is the want of command, it is the want of demand, it is not the desire of Paul's heart, it is an apostolic mandate to do this. I want the men to lead in prayer. 
So when the church gathers together, it is not the women who are to take the leadership in the church worship service in praying. That does not mean, as we said at that time, that women cannot pray with men when it's appropriate, that women cannot pray in a Sunday school class, that women cannot gather together in a, in a home Bible study and pray with men. It is saying that in the worship service, when the church gathers for its constituted uh, time of worship, it is the men who are to take the leadership, and part of that leadership role is to lead in prayer. The men, he says in verse 8, are to be godly. They are to lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension, which means not so much that, that the hands have to physically go up like this, but the thought here is that not that hands are holy, but that a life is holy and the hands are merely symbolic of that they are extensions of the heart. And therefore, he says, without wrath and dissension. In other words, when the men lead in prayer, they are, they are to be pure men. They are to be godly men. They are not to be men who are disputing, not to be men who are fighting, not to be men who are carrying on in the wrong way. They are to be godly leaders. And so... The question that you would normally think of as you come to the end of verse 8 is, what about the women? If the men are to be godly and they are to lead in the worship service in prayer, what about the women? They also are to be godly and they are to be pure. And so Paul picks up this theme, which is really the, the theme of godliness, and yet it is also another issue. It is an extension of the first issue, but also a sub-issue, because now he begins to speak about the role of women in the church. Men are to lead and the women are not to lead, but they are to be godly. They are to be pure, not as leaders, but as those who are in submission to the authority of the male leaders, which would be the elders or pastors of the church. So the issue in this chapter is godliness. That is really the primary issue, godliness, at least from verse 8 and on. And the real question is this, how are women who worship to demonstrate and evidence their godliness? That is the silent question here. How are women who come to a worship service, Christian women, to conduct themselves so that they worship the Lord properly and evidence a godliness? Well, the first way she evidences her godliness is by her appearance. Verses 9 and 10 say, likewise, I want the women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. They are not to dress so as to attract the attention to themselves. That is the thought here. I want them to adorn themselves properly, modestly, he says, discreetly, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly garments. And we said that that was a very cultural thing, that there was great wealth upon their their heads, their, they would flaunt themselves in their apparel, and not only that, they would come uh, looking... Uh, to attract the attention of men. And Paul says that is inappropriate for a worship service. When you come to the worship service, you come to focus on the Lord. You don't come to draw people's attention to yourself. She is to dress appropriately. Now, there may be a place for a Christian woman to dress as to draw attention to herself. Um, I could think of a wedding. The bride is to draw attention to herself. Everybody is there to see the bride. The groom just happens to show up. But everybody is there to see the bride, and that would be appropriate. But in the worship service, we don't dress as brides. That's, in essence, what he's saying. In the worship service, we dress so as to not draw attention to ourselves, but we dress so as to draw attention to Christ. Especially 
And this really should go without saying, but we have to deal with it because this is the background and, and the essence of thought here. A woman should never dress for seductive reasons or to flaunt her wealth. Never. That is inappropriate in any place and especially in the worship service. She is to dress, as Paul says, modestly and discreetly. And we said that the word modestly really means a sense of shame. In fact, I believe the authorized version version says uh, a shamefacedness. That's the thought there. She is to shrink back from with, with shame that with even the thought that by her uh, by her apparel that she would she could and would tempt a man to have illicit thoughts after her. And so there is a sense of shame, and that's what modesty means. And she has a shame about her. Not that she's ashamed to, to look like a woman, but that there might be a sense of shame that, that goes beyond just looking like a woman but trying to attract a man. And then he says she is to dress discreetly. And I told you that it means basically that she is to have a rein on her passions. She is not to come to the worship service trying to gain the attention of men and draw men away from their wives and after her. And then Paul says in verse 10, but rather by means of good works, as befits or suits women making a claim to godliness. For those women who make a claim to godliness, who profess to know the Lord and to follow him, they are not to be concerned so much about the outward adornment, but they are to be concerned, at least the outward adornment of clothing, they are to be primarily concerned about the outward adornment of good works. If you profess godliness, ladies, then it ought to be indicated by your behavior because the real source of a woman's beauty is her godliness, not her glamour. Not her glamour. Now, I just want to clarify that this is not to say that women are to come looking as dull as possible. That would be equally wrong. Because by doing so, and looking as drab as possible, and thinking that that is spirituality, a woman draws attention to herself because she does not fit in. And that is equally wrong. The point here is that a woman ought to dress like a woman, but not in a way that is inappropriate and draws attention to herself. She is to dress in good taste. I guess if you want to sum up the first point, her dress is to be in good taste. Why? Because what she wears on the outside is merely a reflection of the inside and the inner heart. It is a heart issue. It is a character issue. It is not really an issue of what you wear on the outside, except what you wear ought to be reflective of what you are. So we said the first way that a woman evidences her godliness in the worship service is by her appearance. And there might be some who say, well, why? God isn't concerned about it. In one sense, that's, that's true. Because the Bible says God looks on the inside. God looks on the heart. But a worship service is, is involving other people. And the same verse that said God looks on the inside also says man looks on the outside. And so because people do look on the outside, because impressions are made on the outside, there is a consideration that must be given to the outward appearance. When you're alone with the Lord, you can wear whatever you want because God is really not that concerned. But as soon as you go out in public, you are to dress appropriately for the public worship service. So her godliness is evidenced by her appearance. But not only that, as Paul continues in verses uh, 11 and 12, he says the godliness of a woman in worship is also evidenced by her activity in the worship service, her activity, what she does, or her role. He says in verse 11, let a woman 
quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, these two verses are the battlegrounds for this whole passage. Now, I don't, I'm not battling it, and I don't think you battle it, but if you want to find a battleground with somebody uh, who claims to be evangelical and believe the Bible, this is the place. It is amazing how many people, uh, individual Christians, Bible colleges, seminaries, uh, based on these two verses, and I believe a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of these two verses, are changing their views of the role of women in the church. But these two verses constitute the real crux of the matter when it comes to people having a problem with scriptural passages dealing with the role of women in their submission. And the battle really is over Paul instructing a woman, or women we should say, to be submissive to male leadership in the church by learning under them rather than by teaching them. Now, to those of us who take the Bible at face value, that may seem strange that this could be a battleground. Uh, I think that it's rather obvious what these verses are saying. I don't think you need to go off to seminary to figure out what these verses are saying. Let me just read it again and see if, if just at face value they pose a problem to you. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Nothing too difficult in that verse. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority. It means to have dominion over a man, but to remain quiet. Nothing particularly hard about that. So why then, I ask myself as I study this, why then do people have a struggle with these two verses? Well, as I've looked at the issue, I found that there are basically four ways that people have to approach this passage and others like this to try what I believe is to skirt the issue. It is only a prejudiced, biased mind that could not see these verses at face value and take them the way they are intended to be taken. So what I thought we'd do is to give you some insight as to how people handle these verses uh, when they don't want to just take it at face value. And what I'm doing here is equipping you. I don't just want to teach you at this point what the text is saying, though that's what I primarily want to deal with in this study, but I want you to understand how people handle these texts so that you might have some ammunition and be equipped to deal with it. So I would encourage you to take notes. If not, then be sure to pick up the, the tape, and perhaps there'll be a tape series on this. I don't know. The first way that people handle this is to say, Paul didn't write 1 Timothy. I mean, that's, that's the first way. In fact, I was reading about uh, one woman who says, that's it. Paul didn't write it. It was written by a scribe. And other passages that, that speak of a woman being submissive to a man, Paul would never write it. And they were added by scribes, and they really aren't a part of, of inspired scripture. It's a strange statement to make, a very strange statement to make. How do we answer that? Well, who decides what's inspired and what's not? Who did God give this authority to for someone, whether it be a man or a woman, to come along and say, I don't like this passage of Scripture. It doesn't agree with my theology. So Paul didn't write it. Whenever we do that, what we are doing is setting ourselves up as the authority of Scripture. What we're doing is saying we judge Scripture. Scripture doesn't have authority over us. We sit in judgment on the Word of God. And if we don't like a portion of Scripture, we just kind of take it out. A number of years ago, Michelle and I had neighbors 
who um, we never really got into this issue very much, but we were speaking to them one, one day. They were professing Christians. I, I have no reason to, to question their salvation. But we were discussing one time uh, the issue of men in, in leadership and women in the church. And um, we quoted a passage of Scripture, and their response was, well, that's, that's not inspired. All? Who are you to say that's not inspired? Well, anyone can say that, but it's not true. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is God-breathed or inspired. God is the primary source of all Scripture, and therefore it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that men and women like us might be thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. And so all of the Word of God is indeed the Word of God. And when we pick and choose what is from God and what isn't, then we become the final authority and not God. Now, this is a very, very weak argument. And where does it end? Where do you stop with this? If it starts here and saying, I don't like this, Paul must not have written it because it doesn't sound like Paul. He would never say something like that. Then will you change the gospel as well? Will you take out the deity of Christ? Will you take out other basic doctrines of the word of God? You see, you cannot do that. You cannot just make a blanket statement and say, Paul didn't write First Timothy. I don't like what it has to say. Certainly, Paul would never say anything like this. Must have been a scribe. The second way, and I don't think we would have much problem with that, but the second way that people handle a passage of scripture like First Timothy 2 or other scriptures dealing with the role of men and women in the church is to say this, Paul wrote it, but he was wrong. So they're giving some concession. They think, yes, Paul wrote it, but Paul was wrong. He was influenced, they say, by his Jewish rabbinical upbringing, his training, his background, and he didn't really have a proper understanding of how the gospel related to the role of women. Now that is being propagated a lot. Many people say that. Paul was wrong. This is the whole debate in theological circles of what we call the inerrancy debate. Does the Bible have mistakes? And this is a very low view of of the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture means that God so controlled the Bible writers that what they wrote, what they wrote down was indeed the very words that came forth from God. It was not a mixture of truth and legend. In fact, if you'll turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is just very basic, very basic, but I want you to understand this. We're not in a rush to go through 1 Timothy 2. You need to be equipped. You need to understand it. We need to to help uh, give ourselves convictions on this matter. But 2 Peter chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 19. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Now, he's speaking in context about when the Lord was on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, with his disciples. He says, in fact, let, let's, let's look at that whole thing in context. Let's look at verse 16. That's, that's better to see it in its whole setting. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says there was a time when we actually witnessed the majesty of Christ, we saw his glory. When was that? It was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before them. Uh, It's as if he pulled back the flesh and the glory of God shone, and they had a glimpse of the second coming of Christ, of what it will be like. And Peter said, we didn't tell you tales. We didn't make up legends. We witnessed it. We saw it. I was there, and there was James and John with me. 
And verse 17 backs that, that interpretation up, which is correct. For when we, he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves, Peter says, heard this utterance made from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. Now Peter said, I was there, I was an eyewitness, I saw it, I heard it. And he says, or it could be translated, or... We have a prophetic word made more sure. Best to translate it. And we have a prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In other words, he said, look, we saw him, we heard him, but we have something that's more sure than what we heard and what we saw. We have the word of God. It could be, and I believe should be translated, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Not prophecy in the sense of telling the future, but prophecy in the sense of the words of the prophets. We have something that's more sure and, and reliable than what we heard and what we saw, because you can't always trust what you heard and saw. We have it in black and white, he's saying. What is that? It is the word of prophecy. It is the proclamation of the prophets. Verse 20 says, but know this, and this is why it's more sure, because man didn't make it up. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no words of the Bible are a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Spirit of God or the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Someone asked me recently, how did, how did that happen? I don't know. I don't speak like that. I just study what's in the book. I've never spoken in, uh, in an inspired way. I don't know how it happened. But the point of Second Peter chapter 1 is to say that what God breathed out was written down by men of God who were so born along and controlled. And that word born along or control is, is, is the word that's used of a ship being absolutely dominated and controlled by the wind, at the mercy of the wind. They were so controlled and dominated by the Spirit of God, even though he did not violate their own personalities, that what's written down is exactly what God breathed out. The great preacher C.H. Spurgeon said, I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. End of quote. The mechanics of how God communicated to the writers in a way that perfectly expressed his message without masking the writer's personality is a mystery, at least to me. But if any part of the Bible is going to have authority over us, then all of it has to have authority over us. I'm glad you came along with us today for our verse-by-verse journey through this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2 about the role of women in worship. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher here on Verse by Verse. He's the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Find out more about Lakeside at lakesidechapel.com. Or if you're in the area, stop in for worship some Sunday. The address is 1891 Sunset Point Road. Verse by Verse is a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside. At our website, besides information on giving to help keep Verse by Verse on the air, we have a large collection of previous broadcasts available for downloading or streaming at no cost to you. 
So if you're new to Verse by Verse and want to catch up on what you missed, set your web browser to versebyverseradio.org. Another resource is our CD service. You can order a CD with one of Pastor Steve's messages in its entirety without announcements by calling 727-239-0306. I'm your announcer, Jerry Peterson, and I hope you can be here next time. You might remember Bill Clinton a long time ago putting his foot in his mouth when under questioning about some of his extracurricular Oval Office activities, he said, that depends on what your definition of is is. Well, people really like to redefine words in the Bible to make it agree with their preconceived ideas. And that's dangerous, as Pastor Steve will explain on the next Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. Genesis 19 picks up in the middle of the narrative about Sodom and Gomorrah. The end of Genesis 18, Abraham and God are going back and forth on whether or not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham is pleading with God, if there are only a few believers there, will you spare the city? But what happened was God ended up rescuing Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah and still destroying the city. One of the principles of God's salvation is that he